Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hallelujah. Shabbat shalom. As you know, if you've been here, we've been in a long series uh, on the book of Romans. Uh, today's part 14. I want to finally finish up chapter 8 uh, today. And so we're going to read the last part of Romans chapter 8 together, and we have it on the overhead uh, as well. If we can, uh, So beginning in verse 28, Romans 8, uh, beginning in verse 28 through, through the end of the chapter. Uh, and Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, says this, uh, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those God, for those God foreknew, he predestined, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Mashiach Yeshua, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is it now at the right hand of God and is interceding for you, for me, for us. What, who, shall, who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, holiday times like Thanksgiving, they're about joy and family, celebration, merriment. But today, if you're bearing a burden or struggling with life issues or troubles, then, then holidays can actually be a tough time. So suffering people, especially at holiday times, they want to know, what basis do I really have for joy, for, for Thanksgiving? Uh, why should I be joyful or merry? And the answer is the gospel. Because if the incarnation, God with us, in the person of Yeshua, if this really happened, if God really did open a door in the cleft of the, of the pitiless walls of the universe, if he broke into our broken reality with his healing power, if he became a human being, if the incarnation and the crucifixion and the atonement and the resurrection are true, then today you've got a lot of solid basis for joy that the gospel gives you. I'm going to speak about three of them that are in this passage, three solid bases for joy he gives us in this text uh, in Romans 8 that you can have in any circumstance, even in in your deepest grief. Three things that that will hold you up. 
you know, one of the classic books of, of Western literature, which used to be, back in my day, used to be required reading in college classes on Western civilization, is a book called The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. Both, uh, I can't pronounce it right. Uh, Boethius. Boethius, written in 524 uh, of the Common Era. Boethius, he was a philosopher, a statesman, a, statesman, a theologian. But he was thrown into prison on these trumped-up charges, and he writes this book uh, in prison while waiting to be executed. And the question he, he poses is, if the world takes everything away from you, everything to rejoice in, is there still any way to maintain your equilibrium, uh, your hope, your joy, in the face of these terrible circumstances? And his answer in the end of the book is yes. And as a believer, as a Yeshua follower, he comes up with the exact same three things that, that Paul mentions here in Romans 8. Uh, and we're not going to get into all the details today of all this passage we read, all the thorny issues of predestination and free will that this passage raises, because we're going to look at all that stuff next time, beginning in Romans 9. So come back next time. But rather, today I want to focus on these three promises uh, about your ultimate joy, uh, despite all your outward circumstances. Because there's three things that the gospel, if you embrace it, will give you as solid bases for joy. And we have it on the overhead. So number one, our bad things will turn out for good. Number two, uh, your most truly good things can never be taken from you. And number three, your best things are yet to come. That's what Romans 8, this passage, is telling us. Your bad things will ultimately turn out for good. Your truly good things can never be taken from you. Your best things are yet to come. And if you embrace and believe and internalize these three truths, you can face anything. So number one, our bad things will turn out for good. Think of the incarnation. Think of Yeshua being born into poverty, uh, born into danger. His family has to flee to Egypt to escape slaughter. There's no room for him at the inn. But out of Yeshua's poverty comes the greatest spiritual riches. Out of Yeshua's weakness comes the most incredible power and, and strength. Out of Yeshua's isolation and rejection comes a people, comes a faith community brought together, united in the deepest love and unity. Out of terrible things and through terrible things, and indeed because of these terrible things that happened, comes great good. As Paul says, Romans 8.28, our passage, for, our verse for today, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, bad and good, big and small, all things work together for good to those who love God. Now, let me tell you what this verse is not saying. It, this is not a superficial, saccharine view of life that says, oh, behind every cloud is a silver lining. This, all bad things are somehow good. That's not what it's saying. Uh, so here are these bad things, these really bad things. It's not saying, well, if you, if you learn to look at them from a certain perspective, they're really good. No. They're really bad. Yeshua never promised that bad things would not happen to you. So, for example, uh, at the tomb of Lazarus, Eliezer, uh, Yeshua's close friend Lazarus is dead. Yeshua goes to the tomb. Everybody around him are weeping, all the people there. Yeshua is about to do exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8.28. Out of this bad, 
He's going to bring something good. He's going to bring glory and joy into the world, hear this, that would not have been there if Lazarus had not died. He's going to bring good out of the bad. He's going to make it all work together for good. But he's not chuckling at the tomb. He's not saying that, that this death is good. He doesn't go up to the tomb and say, ha, 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 watch, watch, this, watch this now. <laughs> uh, you, wait do you guys see this. He's not chuckling. He's not saying, uh, I'm going to raise him from the dead so all is well. No. In fact, what does the text say he does in, Roman, in John 11? Shortest verse in the Bible. <laughs> Yeshua weeps. He weeps. He weeps with those who weep. The text actually says he's angry at the tomb. He's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In fact, the literal Greek says that he bellows at the tomb like a bull uh, because he knows that death was not God's original plan. Yeshua's reaction reminds me of the, the famous poem by Dylan Thomas put on the overhead. Right? Do not go gently into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And that's what Yeshua is doing here. He's raging at death because he knows it's not the way he first created this world. In the beginning, there was no death. Death is a bad thing. And Yeshua acknowledges it as such. He's raging against the dying. He's raging at death, which separates soul from body. He's raging at injustice, which separates race from race. All things that tear asunder, what God has put together are bad. They're bad. They're evil in and of themselves. It's not, oh, this is a silver lining, or if you look at it a different way, it's not really bad. No, they're, they're bad. They're terrible. Yeshua hates them. He's groaning. He's bellowing. He's angry at them. But Romans 8.28 says the way God defeats those really, truly bad things is that in the sum total, all together, God is overruling and shaping, and mastering everything, so that in the end, he defeats the bad. Because somehow he's going to make all the bad and everything working together to bring about good results in your life, if you love him today. And so you may ask, well, how? How does this all happen? Well, there's one way that God does this uh, that's pretty easy to understand. And there's a second way he does this that's probably... Uh, impossible for us to fully understand uh, in this lifetime. So the one way that's fairly easy to grasp is actually right here in Romans 8, 28, which says that God works all things together for good. And then verse 29 says, His whole plan for us is to conform us into the likeness of Yeshua. And that's the key to all things working together. Uh, that's the part we can grasp. So you may think, for example, your biggest problems are your circumstances. You may think, my biggest problem is if I could just get that money, if I could just get the job, if only this door would open. You think your problem is your circumstances, but circumstances cannot destroy your life the way that your character flaws can. It's your character that's your real problem. That's what will really destroy you. It's foolishness and pride. It's selfishness, addiction, lack of self-control. It's anger and unforgiveness, jealousy, greed, dishonesty. 
It's doubt and unbelief and denial of your sins and flaws. It's your self-centeredness and your stubbornness and hardness of heart. And most of all, the false delusions that you don't need Yeshua. All these things, these character flaws, ironically, are the things which almost always it takes bad stuff happening to you to knock them out of you. So if you've been alive today more than two or three decades, there's things that have happened to you that, that you have scars to prove it that, that are bad and that still hurt. And yet the insight or the perseverance or the humility or the strength or the character that you've gotten from it and through it, you would not trade for anything. And that's just a hint of what we're being told here. So we'll put this on the overhead. All sorts of bad things are going to happen to you through which God is going to conform you to the image of his son. He suffered not that you might not suffer, but that when you suffer, you might become more like him. That's the key. And there's no true joy without conformity to a Messiah. So all these bad things will ultimately, if you allow them, if you process them properly, will make you into a better person. If you choose to draw near to God in the midst of them. And that's the key. So suffering can do one of two things. Suffering can either make you more like Yeshua, or it can drive you farther away from him. It's all up to you how you choose to respond to your suffering. So that's the part we can understand about how God can work all things together for good. But there's also another sense in which God is working all things together for good that will escape us. Uh, You've got to realize this if you're ever going to be able to handle all the troubles in life. So don't miss this. You have to know that God is working all things together for good even when you can't possibly grasp how. And the number one place to see this The best example to see this is is the cross itself. You know, I confess, if I was back there 2,000 years ago at the foot of the cross, back in the first century, and all I knew were the the Hebrew scriptures, that's all there was at the time, and the contemporary Jewish expectations for a conquering kingly Messiah, if I was there at Yeshua's terrible crucifixion that dark afternoon, and I knew only what everybody else knew at the time, that here was a really good man, a godly man, a man of tremendous power to do good. He's healing the sick and and giving sight to the blind, feeding people, cleansing lepers, uh, making the lame walk, even raising the dead. He had enormous potential, and yet he's cruelly cut off in his prime, only 33 years old, tragic death, and it's even clear that God himself had abandoned him. In fact, he even cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So with all the facts, if I had all the facts that everybody else had, if I were there, just like his disciples, who, by the way, all fled and abandoned him, I would have looked up and said, I don't see what good God could possibly be bringing out of this. And I would have gone home losing my faith, perhaps, at least shaken, maybe losing it, because I couldn't fit within my little brain how God is bringing about enormous good out of the seeming tragedy. In fact, the greatest thing God would ever do in the the whole universe, the history of the whole human race, but because it didn't fit into my little mental map, 
my little theological constructs and patterns and, 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 and categories, I would have said, I don't see what good God could possibly bring out of this. When in fact, he was bringing about the salvation of the world, confounding the wisdom of the wise. So remember, if you have an infinite God, of course he can have reasons for doing things that you can't consider, uh, that you can't understand. In fact, it's the height of, of intellectual pride and arrogance not to admit that God could have reasons for allowing things to happen that you can't understand. So just because you can't think of a reason for God allowing this and this to happen does not mean there is no reason. So if that's what I would have done at the foot of the cross, and my guess is perhaps you would have done the same, probably. So when you feel abandoned, when you feel everything is unfair uh, and bad that's happening to you, and you can't see any good reason in the world why God would let this happen, do not make the same mistake and assume that there is no good reason. That God in his infinite wisdom won't, won't somehow work this for good. Don't make the same mistake the disciples made at the foot of the cross. For they all fled in bewilderment and, and depression and doubt and fear. So number one, our bad things will turn out for good. That's key for you to grasp. Uh, and the gospel proves it. Number two, put this on the overhead. Uh, number two, our truly good things can never be taken away from us. That's the second thing that the gospel shows us. Uh, because the gospel shows us the radical graciousness of God's salvation. The traject- by the way, the trajectory of all human, all human religion is that I go to God. I have to ascend through either moral effort or, or transformation of consciousness uh, or various spiritual paths or ritual or mitzvot or good deeds. I must ascend towards God. And then hopefully he'll bless me and he'll take me to wherever, heaven or nirvana or Valhalla. If I live the life I ought to live, then he'll bless me and save me. That's the essence of every man-made religion. They're all at bottom the religion of human effort. But the gospel is the opposite. The gospel is unique. The trajectory of the gospel is the other direction. It's from God to us. In the incarnation, God is saying, you're never going to be able to come up to me. So I will come down to you. Or else you're never going to make it. And therefore Yeshua traverses the whole chasm between God and man. He comes all the way. He becomes a man. Emmanuel, God with us. He, he comes right to us, humbling himself, taking on the form of a man, uh, even a bondservant being made in human likeness. Philippians uh, 2, verse 8 says this, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the tree, on the execution stake, on the cross. See, Yeshua, he strips himself of his glory uh, for your sake, my sake. And in the incarnation, he comes to earth as a bondservant. Notice that. He He comes not as a king, but as a poor peasant. Uh, He comes not as strong and powerful, but as poor and weak and lowly. You know, remember the the old hymn, uh, which says, put this in the overhead as well, uh, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable and see our God extended on the straw. 
Why does, God, why does the Lord come not as a general at the head of an army, not as a king on his throne, but as a poor and weak carpenter from a nondescript Jewish backwater? I'll tell you why. He doesn't come as one strong for the strong. He doesn't come as the strong for the strong. He's not a God who helps those who help themselves. No, no way. He comes for we who are weak and who can't do what we need to do, who cannot perfectly and wholly and consistently obey the Torah, obey the law of God. He comes for those who fail at loving God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and fail at loving their neighbor as themselves. He comes to those who admit they're weak. So Yeshua comes in our place to do what we could not do, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died. Yeshua, he comes to suffer, to die, to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. He comes to give you love and salvation and eternal life, not based on your efforts and your good works and your rituals and your mitzvot, but rather based on your repentance and your trust in him and your commitment of your life to him as your Lord and Master and God and King. So our salvation is based on no condition within us. It's Yeshua's divine love that's beyond condition. And that's what this passage in Romans 8 is all about. So, for example, in, in verse 29, the text says, God foreknows us. Now, what do you think that means? You might say, people, many people do say, oh, that means God foresees things that are going to happen. He foresees us. Uh, he sees the end from the beginning, and he's outside of time. No. It means so much more than that, Hebraically. Because knowing in the Bible is a very relational word. To simply know about something, yeah, that's a cognitive thing. But to know something is an experiential thing. It's an existential thing. You can know about someone, but, but not know them. And therefore, when the, when the scriptures say that God foreknows us, it's not saying that he merely foresees us, but that he foreloves us. He pours out his love upon us before we do anything in his direction. He calls us and he bids us then to choose and respond to his love. That's how unconditional and fierce and aggressive his love is for you. Want a perfect example? Prodigal son. Here comes the prodigal son finally trudging home. Does the father sit there on the porch, tapping his foot, saying, this better be good. Does the father say, if he grovels enough and repents, then maybe I'll shower him with my love? No. What does the father do? He hikes up his skirt, which is totally unbecoming to a Middle Eastern man, a patriarch. He runs after him, which is not done by Middle Eastern patriarchs. He kisses him, hugs him, pounces on him, showers him with love, blesses him, making it that much easier for the son to repent. We put this on the overhead. Our love does not evoke God's love. Just the opposite. God's love evokes ours. He loved us first so that we could love him. That's how awesome and radical God's love is for you. Now, if you say, well, what about free will? Don't worry, that's next week, Romans 9. 
<laughs> but for now, let's just accept the gift and praise God that he's not just your boss, but he's your father. You know, a boss can like an employee, but if that employee screws up over and over and over again, even the nicest boss starts to say, how do I get rid of him? <laughs> even the nicest boss says, if this employee keeps screwing up, eventually I've got to fire him or her. But when a child screws up again and again, all that does is make the parent more intensely concerned for that child. It intensifies the love of the parent. It focuses, like a laser beam, the love of the parent. The more the child screws up, the more parental love explodes in the direction of the child. And that means what? The, the, the really great things you have, your eternal salvation, your forgiveness of your sins, fellowship with Messiah, being filled with the Holy Spirit, entrance into God's kingdom, adoption into God's family, your personal relationship with Yeshua. These things cannot be taken away from you ever. Romans 8, 35. Who then can separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. And you know what this means? This means that the absolute sovereign of the universe, to whom the galaxies are like so much dust on the scales, he loves you with the unconditional intensity of a parent for the little child. And that's the second point of this passage. Your truly good things as a Yeshua follower can never be taken from you. The gospel shouts this from the rooftops. Hallelujah. So number one, your bad things can never be taken from you. I'm sorry, your bad things will turn out for good. Number two, your most truly good things can't be taken from you. And finally, number three, the best things are yet to come. And we see this at the end of the passage. Look at Romans 8, 28 to 30. God for loves us, he puts, meaning he puts his love on us. He calls us. He justifies us. He saves us, making us right with him. And he glorifies us. Uh, Look at this actual text, because it doesn't quite say that he will then glorify us, does it? The actual text is a little bit different. Look at Romans 8.30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Notice it's in the past tense. It doesn't say, like you think it should, that someday in the future he will glorify you, which is what we think it should say. But instead it says he has already glorified us. It's past tense. What's Paul saying? You know, commentators have troubled over this for centuries. It's striking. You know, what would you and I say, talking to, uh, to Yeshua followers, uh, is that uh, he put his love on you, uh, he called you, uh, he justified you, he, he pardoned you, and we would say, in some day in the future, he will glorify you, as if you're a Yeshua follower. But that's not what, what Rav Shaul, Rabbi Saul, that's not what Paul says. He says, if you're in Messiah Yeshua, you are already glorified. Past tense. 
past tense. So what's going on here? Here's what he's saying, I think. First of all, because of what Yeshua has done, your future glory has been made so certain that Paul can talk about it this way. It is so certain. And you say, well, how can it be that certain? You know, it's a famous hymn, A Firmer Foundation. It, it ends with, with these lines. And it says, That soul that on Yeshua does lean to repose, for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul should all hell endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, nor never forsake. How is it possible God would never forsake you? Because Yeshua on the cross said to God, you've forsaken me. Yeshua was forsaken in your place so that you will never be forsaken. Yeshua lost his glory, gave up his glory when he condescended to come to earth, Philippians 2. He emptied himself from his glory, Isaiah 53. He had no beauty that we should desire him, no form of majesty. He laid down his glory. He became pitiful and small. He became killable, inconsequential. He lost his glory so that you and I could have it. And have it so certainly and so assuredly that the scriptures can describe it here in the past tense as if it's already happened. Now that's assurance. And if that's the case, and it is, I believe that Paul's saying that, Paul's saying, you know, I believe so much in the, in the true brutality of life. He wasn't naive. Uh, that I, I don't have, Paul's saying, I don't have rose colored glasses. I don't naively believe in mind over matter. Uh, I would never you know, minimize the, the tribulations and trials and troubles of life. I believe so much in the inevitable, inescapable brutality of life that unless I absolutely knew that glory was coming to me, I would not be able to face life and live a meaningful life in the midst of all this suffering. Paul saying only glory makes it possible to realistically face how bad life is and live a meaningful life in the midst of it, even a triumphant life in the midst of it, knowing that we are glorified in him. And the scriptures say in our passage, especially if we share in his sufferings. So look at Romans eight eighteen. Paul says, I consider our present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And in 2 Corinthians four sixteen, he says this, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away, yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. For what's seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. Wow. If you look back at this whole chapter I just quoted from, the chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, you get the context. And you see Paul, he was hard-pressed, he was crushed, uh, he was perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying in his body the death of Yeshua, being himself given over uh, time and again to death. Uh, and then a few chapters later, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, he describes all these things that happened to him, that he was imprisoned, he was flogged repeatedly, Exposed to death all for the sake of Messiah. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, it says this. Five times 
I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That doesn't mean get high on drugs. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. (laughs) I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Goyim, the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and gone without sleep, known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And yet despite all these things that happened to him, from an eternal perspective, he can say that all these things, all these things Paul says is now saying, He calls them light and momentary afflictions compared to the glory that will one day be revealed in him. And in fact, all these troubles and tribulations, even more so, he says, even more than that, he says they're actually helping to forge and produce and achieve this eternal weight of glory. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying two things here. First, Paul's saying, when you suffer in Yeshua, and you hold on to him. It makes you so much more real. Uh, this word kavod, uh, glory, glory. Kavod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek. It means weighty or solid. So, so for example, your career is typically very important to you. So if you have problems in your career, it will shake you. But if you completely build your whole life on your career, if your whole identity is in your career, then if something goes wrong with your career... You're shattered. You're just shattered. You're devastated. Because then there's, there's, no, there's no you that's left. You have no other identity. There's no self that's left. That's the reason why instead of putting all your weight on the things that are always shifting around and shaking, when you put your weight on the rock, on Yeshua, when you root yourself firmly and in his love, in the love of God, and what he says about what he's done for you, you become more solid. You become more stable. You become more real. You're someone who's going to last, no matter what. So when you properly process your suffering, so that it gets you more and more into Yeshua, so that it drives you more and more towards Yeshua, into what he's done for you, it actually makes you what I'm going to call more real. Just like described in one of my favorite children's books, The, the Velveteen Rabbit. <laughs> and this is, we're putting the overhead here, this famous children's book. The skin horse says to the Velveteen Rabbit, when a child loves you for a long, long time, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the Velveteen Rabbit. Oh, yes, said the skin horse. That's why it doesn't happen, it does not happen to those who break easily or have to be very carefully handled. Because by the time you're real, most of your hair is rubbed off, your eyes drop out, you get really really loose in the joints, you look awfully shabby. But once you're real, you cannot be ugly, except to those who don't understand. Also reminds me of the famous uh, John Newton hymn. Uh, God's the speaker here, we'll put this on the overhead as well. And in God speaking, he says, These inward trials I employ from pride and self to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy so that you might find your all in me. So number one, suffering actually is making you more glorious now if you properly handle it. 
Your inward man is being renewed day by day. It's preparing an eternal weight of glory for you now. And number two, your future glory, it'll just overwhelm any, any present difficulties you have as, as you meditate on that future glory. Because Paul, said, Paul says this, Romans 8.18, I reckon, I consider, I count that, that my present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory of Yeshua that will be revealed in us. Properly understood, our future glory absolutely overwhelms and puts perspective on and enables us to face our present sufferings. You know, Teresa of Avila, she says, you know, the first kiss from Yeshua in glory will make all your life's suffering look like just one night in a bad hotel. <laughs> and then there's uh, Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov, who put on the overhead. He says this. He says, I believe uh, that all the suffering will be healed and made up for in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for comforting all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity and all the blood they've shed. And it will make possible not just to forgive, but to justify all the sufferings of the past. Something like this is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 8. So let me draw this together now. Do you understand that your sufferings can already be making you glorious? And that someday your suffering will be overshadowed by the glory to come? You know, it's powerfully summarized in, in this uh, vignette by C.S. Lewis uh, in The Great Divorce. This is an episode about a ghost from hell. Uh, he's not very real, he's just a ghost. Uh, but he comes on a bus to the outskirts of heaven. This is just a fictional story, by the way. <laughs> and he's looking longingly towards heaven. And an angel comes down from the heights of heaven to meet him. But the ghost has this little red lizard on his shoulder, uh, a demon. And of course, the lizard doesn't want to go to heaven. And he doesn't want to leave the ghost. So the ghost turns around, sadly, to leave and go back on the bus uh, back to hell. And the angel calls out to him. And the angel says, hey, why are you leaving so soon? And the ghost says, well, this little fellow up here, he really doesn't want to go to heaven, and so, so I can't stay. And the angel says, would you like me to make him quiet? And the ghost says, yeah, well, yes, that, that'll be a relief. And then I'll kill him, said the angel. Oh, you didn't say anything about killing him. It's the only way, said the angel. May I kill him? Well, let's discuss this. There is no time. May I kill him? Oh, look, it's gone to sleep. I'm sure he won't be any trouble anymore. Yes, he will. May I kill him? Well, I think the gradual process is always the best. No, 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 no. The gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Get back, get back. You're hurting me. You didn't tell me it would hurt. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. May I kill it? Uh, look, 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 let me run back to hell on the bus, get an opinion from my own doctor, then, then I'll come back to you later on. This moment contains all moments. May I kill it? And then the lizard begins chattering to the ghost so loudly that everybody else could overhear what it was saying. And he's saying, he can do it, he can do it, he can kill me. And then, what would you do without me? Yeah, I admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise, I, I won't do it again. I'll be very good. May I kill it, said the angel. 
Oh, do it, do it, get it over with, cries the ghost. God, help me, God, help me. Then the angel grabs the lizard, breaks its neck, throws it down. And the ghost screams. But then an amazing thing happened. The ghost stopped being ghostly. It became radiant and gorgeous and bright and real and a human being, a man. And the former ghost, now a man, he spies this nearby white horse. And then when the new-made man arose, uh, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been the liquid love and the brightness that flowed from him. In joyous haste, the man leapt upon the horse's back, and they were off uh, like a shooting star on the green plain and then soon to the mountains. Still like a star, I saw him winding up the mountain, scaling like what seemed impossible heights, quicker with every moment. So high now on the brow of the landscape, they strained my neck to see them. And then at the horizon, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of the everlasting morning. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Our slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? So who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then condemns? No one. Messiah Yeshua who died. Then more than that, who was raised to life. He's now at the right hand of God interceding for you. Who then shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long, like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, neither death or life or angels or demons or any other power or present or future or height or death depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. And I'm going to ask the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. We'll continue with our series next week. Hallelujah. Father, we come before you now and we want to thank you that you promise us and that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called to your purpose. We thank you, Lord, that even in our sufferings, if properly processed in prayer and faith and perseverance, draw us closer to you. Help us to, help to conform us to your image. Help us, therefore, Lord, to use our sufferings not to wallow uh, in self-pity uh, and unbelief and resentment, but rather to use our sufferings to build up our perseverance and our character and our hope. Lord Yeshua, we acknowledge that you suffered, not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become more like you. For our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that you will one day reveal in us. Hallelujah. Therefore, Lord, based on the promises in your word, we don't lose heart. Because we know, Lord, that our light and momentary afflictions are actually producing within us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So Lord, we thank you today, this, this Thanksgiving weekend, that if we abide in you, you promise us that our bad things will one day turn out for good. Our truly good things can never be taken from us. And Lord, uh, most of all, our best things are still yet to come. So who shall separate us from your love? No one. For neither death or life or angels or demons or any other power or present or future or height nor death nor anything in all creation can separate us from your love, Lord, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. And it's in his name now we pray. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.